Will I still have a house in a month? Home is love. Affordable housing really fills a need. Home is hope. You're always grateful to have a roof over your head. Eden Housing is that hope. Welcome to the Affordable Housing Podcast, brought to you by Eden Housing. We can count on the fact that every year there will be affordable housing legislation and a story about how much funding is being allocated to building and preserving affordable housing. Hi, I'm Joanne Green. On today's episode of the Affordable Housing Podcast, brought to you by Eden Housing, we'll hear from David Garcia, Policy Director for the Turner Center for Housing Innovation at UC Berkeley. David leads the center's engagement in local, state, and federal housing policy and supports the generation of research-driven policy ideas, proposals, and papers. Prior to joining Turner, David worked as the chief operating officer for Tenspace, a real estate development company in Stockton focused on infill projects in the downtown area. Earlier, he was a research analyst at the GAO, the Government Accounting Office in Washington, D.C., conducting quantitative and qualitative evaluations and analyses of several federal programs. David, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much for having me. You bet. In the last few years, I hear you have become a go-to expert, heavily quoted in the media. You have a growing Twitter following and all this producing reports for the for the Turner Center. So first of all, congratulations. Hey, thank you. And secondly, tell us what drew you to housing and then to the Turner Center. I will preface all of this by saying I have been greatly supported by the fantastic research uh, conducted by my colleagues at the Turner Center. And so I like to say that my job is easy because all of the really great data and evidence you see coming out of the Turner Center comes from our research side. Uh, I just get to talk about it. Um, and so uh, I get to maybe look smart by extension. Um, so I'm, I'm really grateful for the, the support of, of the center. Um, I would say my interest in housing, um, you know, goes back to uh, my... Uh, experience working in Stockton. Uh, Stockton is where I'm from. It's my hometown. Um, and I had the opportunity to go back several years ago to work on um, some projects in uh, downtown Stockton um, with, uh, in conjunction with affordable housing uh, providers, um, working on entitlements, uh, environmental impact reports, things like that. Um, and for me, it was really about uh, providing um, uh, new housing options for the, for people in an area of Stockton that people weren't necessarily um, excited to go to in, in downtown. And so that was my interest in housing to start. Um, and through working with the real estate development company, going through the process to actually get housing built, really um, uh, was really a, a wake-up call as to how critical uh, our housing problems are in California. Let's talk about the scale of California's housing crisis. This certainly isn't a new problem, but maybe you can give us some perspective. Why is housing so unaffordable here? And do you think there's any hope of turning things around? Yeah. Um, so this is uh, not... So there's, there's a couple answers to this, right? Um, I always start by saying the basic reason is that we simply have not built enough homes for all the people who would like to live in California and would like to remain in California. At, at its easiest and simplest form, um, that, that's kind of the explanation. Um, you know, the last couple years, we like to think that we've experienced a housing boom, right? We see a lot of cranes everywhere. 
um, we, we, we see rents going up and we say, oh, we're in a, we're in a building boom. Uh, but when you look at what the state builds annually, we're only building about 100,000 units per year. Um, contrast that to what we built in the 80s, the 70s, and the 60s. We were building routinely uh, upwards of 200,000 units per year uh, with a smaller population. Uh, sometimes we even built as many as 300,000 units per year. So by comparison, we are building just a fraction of what we've built historically and what we need to keep up with just existing demand in the state. So, um, so, so again, bottom line is we just don't build enough housing. And this is housing across the in income spectrum, right? This is um, deed-restricted affordable housing. We are severely short uh, in meeting our needs for that, um, but also just housing in general, right? The, the, the housing sector has not been able to provide the number of homes necessary to keep up with, with the demand in, in California. Um, and there's a couple reasons for that, right? Um, one of the first reasons is that it costs a lot to build in California. And so what you do see get built uh, on the market rate side is uh, very expensive and attainable to uh, fewer and fewer households in the state uh, as incomes fail, fail to keep up. Um, it also makes our affordable housing dollars less efficient as well, right? If, if it takes $700,000, $800,000 per unit uh, to build affordable housing, then the millions and, and billions of dollars we've seen appropriated recently um, will not go as far. So, so that's a challenge there, uh, too. Um, you know, another reason is that we've severely restricted where we're allowed to build housing, right? So uh, about two-thirds of land in California, uh, of zone land, is reserved exclusively for single-family homes where, basic, where, where affordable housing can't be built um, uh, based on the scale that we know that it's built at. So we've artificially limited the areas which we can actually build housing, which makes it more scarce and drives up the prices that way too. Um, and then lastly, I think there are some aspects of California that make building here unique that, that drive, up, drive up the cost and make things um, just harder to build here. Um, and some of that makes sense, right? We have very ambitious climate goals. Um, we want buildings to, um, to be energy efficient. Um, we, have, uh, we have earthquakes in California, so things need to be able to stand up um, you know, in, in a natural disaster. So we have standards for that. Um, so, so that's somewhat unique to California, um, which, which is a reason why it's, it's a bit more expensive to build here as well, in addition to those other uh, factors that, that I mentioned. Um, so, um, so, so yeah, that, again, simple question, not, not necessarily a simple answer. In a recent blog post, you called 2021 a breakthrough year for housing policy in California. What were the state legislature and the governor able to do this year to try to address the challenges? Yeah, so there are two really encouraging uh, events that happened this, this legislative year. Um, the first is around zoning reform. I mentioned this just now, that two-thirds of the state is reserved for single-family homes. The passage of Senate Bill 9... Um, is a, a pretty significant step towards addressing that imbalance, right? So Senate Bill 9 allows uh, homeowners to build basically up to four units of new housing where only one unit exists today. So this is a big deal for a couple reasons. Uh, first, it's a recognition that um, our history of single-family zoning is actually pretty sordid. Uh, it, is, uh, it was a tool that was explicitly used for segregation for, for decades. And so um, by voting to essentially uh, eliminate single-family-only zoning by allowing multifamily structures in these areas, it, it's somewhat of a recognition of, of this mistake of the past. And so addressing that, I think, is, is important and worth acknowledging. 
It's also important because, again, we have so much land dedicated to single-family homes that adding a couple units here or there uh, may not seem like a lot, um, let's say, in a single neighborhood. But across the state, it could be, uh, in aggregate, pretty impactful. Um, you know, if, if you take, um, you know, every neighborhood and one person adds one unit on that, on that, in that neighborhood across the state, you're talking about tens of thousands of new units potentially. So, um, it, so again, Cinepol 9 is helpful because it can create meaningful amounts of new housing without concentrating it in any particular area because now it's allowed pretty much statewide. Um, so that was encouraging. The other encouraging thing was, was the budget, right? We were, um, really pleasantly surprised to see a budget surplus this year. There was a lot of concern last year because of COVID um, and what the impact would be on the economy, on the state budget. Uh, but this year, uh, we did have a pretty significant surplus. And as part of that, uh, we saw historic investments in affordable and supportive housing. I think it's about $22 billion that was signed um, in the, by the governor, appropriated by the legislature, specifically to build affordable housing and supportive housing and, uh, and, and homeless services. So that is, is huge because, as we all know, to build uh, deed-restricted affordable housing um, and supportive housing, we need subsidy dollars. And, um, you know, for, for the next year, you know, we, 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 have, we have a lot of it. So I think now the question is how fast can we use those dollars to get affordable housing built, um, particularly in an environment where we still see spiraling costs, right? So the sooner we're able to get shovels in the ground, um, the sooner we're able to control for those costs and build uh, and make um, more effective use of those dollars. So, so again, those are the two areas that I found were um, or I consider to be really exciting this year was that, um, that push to reform um, single-family-only zoning and also some pretty significant investments in affordable housing through the budget. Yeah, affordable housing advocates are really excited about the money that's been set aside for the new California Housing Accelerator. I, I understand it's about $1.75 billion, and it's basically a fund mm-hmm. for thousands of shovel-ready affordable housing units that are stuck in the backlog of tax, the whole tax credit system. So yeah. tell us about this program, why it's needed, and how it's going to work. Yeah, so I, I'm really excited about this as well. Uh, every year, uh, projects of apply to win low-income housing tax credits, um, but there's not enough to go around. And so you have shovel-ready projects that have lined up all of the other financing sources that are ready to go, um, but for whatever reason, um, you know, they don't score quite high enough to, to, get, uh, to get the tax credits, and so they have to wait. And this could be years, right? Um, you know, you, there's only two tax credit rounds per year um, for, for the, um, the more lucrative credits. And so it can take a long time to put all the pieces together to get the financing and finally build affordable housing. The accelerator basically puts everyone uh, who is eligible, who, who is shovel-ready at the front of the line and gives them funding immediately. And that's really exciting because that means we can kind of front-load some of these projects um, that may otherwise have taken a couple of years to get to the finish line in terms of financing. So um, so I think that's that's tremendously um Tremendously exciting, and and hopefully in future years, uh, assuming we continue to have uh, favorable budget uh, conditions, we can continue putting uh, funding towards uh, accelerating some of these projects. And that'll provide a whole lot of new jobs too, I would think. Yeah, uh, absolutely. I think there's a lot of spillover economic benefits. I mean, uh, there, there's a uh, you know uh, a lot of 
um, a lot of hope that we can we can start you know putting shovels in the ground immediately, putting putting more people to work, um, and then obviously obviously that's that's positive too. So California's eviction moratorium expired on September 30th mm-hmm. after several extensions that the governor and the legislature granted during COVID. Why do you think they've allowed it to lapse? Yeah, uh, that's a great question. Um, I, I'm not entirely sure why the decision was made that September, you know, uh, was was the month where, where we were gonna we were gonna let that lapse. Um, the administration has said that you know they're still confident that a lot of measures are in place to keep people in their homes. Um, you know, there are are a significant number of local uh, moratoriums and programs that uh, will remain in effect. So it's not necessarily the case that if the state program has lapsed, um, you know, they, they, you may be facing eviction because your, your local government um, may have continued um, their, their protection. So it's important to, to understand um, the resources available to you in, in the city that, that you live in. Um, the administration will, will also say that they are finally getting a handle on getting the money out from the emergency rental assistance, right? This is uh, billions of dollars that the state and the federal government has allocated to cover, um, you know, hundred percent of, uh, rent arrearages and, and, and utilities as well. Um, I think, uh, the state dashboard notes that there's, um, I think almost $700 million that have been paid out to tenants and landlords, um, from the emergency rental assistance program, uh, at the state level. So, so that's encouraging, although it's still just a fraction of the money that has been allocated. So I think, there's still a lot of people out there who are, who are probably waiting to hear back from the state um, as to the status of their application. Why do you think it's so taken so long? And do you think that the payments are uh, going to arrive before people face eviction? Uh, I certainly hope so. Um, I think the, the challenge will be um, that this is a program that the state you know has stood up pretty quickly, right? So it's, it's, they never had to distribute uh, rental assistance on a statewide level before like this. And, and um, while the resources are there, it does take time to stand up a program like this. There, there are growing pains. We saw that in the summer during the deliberations to extend the moratorium again, right? That was the main argument that very little uh, of the money had actually gotten out the door. And so we needed time to work through the kinks and, um, and get the, the pipeline of rental assistance flowing to the people who needed it. And um, it appears that it is flowing better. Um, I don't, know that I can say that it's um, it's reaching everyone in time. I think that's a challenge. Um, what, what I have heard, though, is that as long as you have applied, you can uh, use that as a, as a kind of defense against uh, any eviction proceedings that may be moving forward. So I think that's important to keep in mind. Um, I would also say if this is something that, um, you know, that that uh, that anyone is is facing and struggling uh, to reach out to your local uh, um, tenant organization, legal aid organizations, because they'll be able to point you in the right direction and help guide you during this time. Good to know. During the pandemic, the Turner, St- um, the Turner Center did a study that found 95% of Eden residents were able to pay their rent over the last year and a half, which is a much higher percentage than tenants who are in market rate housing. Were those numbers surprising to you? Yeah, um, they they were somewhat surprising, but once you kind of Dig into the data and understand the the scenario. It actually makes makes a bit of sense that um, uh, that the residents uh, Eden had had a lower um, uh, lower rates of, of non payment. So, uh, on one hand, you actually have a lot of residents who are recipients uh, of government aid. 
So this creates stability, right? We're talking about SSI um, or, or housing choice voucher or something like that uh, that can stabilize um, their uh, rental payments during uh, a time of economic uncertainty. So we saw in the data that the residents who had that kind of support did have lower non-payment rates, right? Um, versus residents who did not have that support. They, they were simply inqualified to, to live in, in, the, in the unit. Um, you know, they, if they did not have that support, um, if they, particularly if they were a one, uh, one adult household with, with children, um, you know, with, with parents having to stay home and skip work, that became really challenging. Uh, and that was true of the, the data we saw. Um, the other reason is that, uh, you know, uh, Eden and other nonprofit providers, they are very mission driven. And so in our conversations with stakeholders, we noted in the report that there was a concerted effort to try and keep people in their units, um, you know, um, uh, however they could do it, right? So um, there was connection to rental assistance. Um, there was uh, repayment plans that are set up, waiving late fees. All of these things help keep people uh, above water while they are figuring out what is what has turned out to be a really, uh, really devastating uh, period uh, of, of time for, for, for jobs, um, particularly for, for people in uh, of, of lower income, affordable housing uh, um, units. But clearly affordable housing was a savior during the pandemic. What lessons do you think the legislature should be taking from this? Yeah. So I think having um, a, a, a kind of a safeguard in place for a crisis like this is really imperative and is going to be um, a lesson learned moving forward, right? Like having an emergency rental apparatus set up uh, already so that we don't have to go through these growing pains again um, if something were some, something similar were, were to impact the housing market like, like it has. Um, also, uh, just making sure that, you know, when we are not in crisis times, we are continuing to push kind of progressive housing policies forward, right? Creating more affordable housing so um, that people are, are generally more stable in a crisis like this, creating more housing, generally speaking, um, so that we, we don't run into these challenges um, uh, in, in the future. So, so those are lessons that I, I hope and, and certainly don't have a reason to think they haven't learned. Uh, but yeah, I, I hope leader, leaders take, take away some positives uh, from this moving forward. David, let's talk about what didn't happen this year. Um, AB one fifteen and SB six didn't happen. Mm -hmm. Tell us what we missed. Yeah, so SB six and AB one one five would have uh, essentially required cities to allow for a certain amount of housing to be built on land that is currently used for commercial uses. Right. So think about big box stores, office parks, things like that. Uh, we actually did research on this topic, um, actually forthcoming in October. Um, and we had something else in um, in December of last year that looked at the amount of land we have in um, that that is reserved for commercial uses, and it's pretty significant, right? So, um, to the extent we need to find um, all of the sites possible to build affordable housing, to build housing in general, uh, commercially zoned land presents a pretty significant opportunity, particularly because of COVID. We have kind of uh, perhaps. Uh, permanent shifts in work from home um, and uh, and retail shifts to e-commerce. Um, and so cities are going to have to consider how they are going to leverage this land. Are they going to uh, continue to require that it only be commercial uses or can we do more mixed use projects, right? So ground floor retail, uh, housing units above. 
So these bills um, in different ways would have essentially required this. Um, but it, they ran into some obstacles uh, from a couple of reasons. SB6 uh, ran into some pushback uh, because there was not an affordability requirement in the bill. There was intent language to put that in there, um, but the author and stakeholders didn't really come to an agreement on how much affordable housing should be required in these projects, right? Um, on the other hand, AB 115 faced pushback from uh, from the state building trades who would like to see um, pro-labor language inserted into the bill where um, it would, there would be a requirement to use union labor on these kinds of projects. And so that, that bill actually stopped pretty early in the process. Um, Senate Bill 6 had, had similar challenges. Um, it did have that union language in it initially, uh, but as it went through the legislative process, uh, that language was softened, and then there was really an impasse at that point between um, the author and the stakeholders, and so the bill the bill was pulled. Um, I do anticipate we'll see um, either or both bills back next year. I think this is a topic that uh, there's a lot of interest in, and as our research has shown, there's a lot of potential too. So I think we will we'll see this come back next year. So you think there's going to be some agreement between affordable housing groups and the labor unions? Uh, I don't know if the, maybe maybe not initially. Am I overstating uh, I think, that? <laughs> it will take, yeah, I think it'll take uh, a lot of uh, time at the negotiating table to really figure this out um, because they're they're. My understanding is they weren't really close at the end. So um, I would like to see some sort of compromise made because I do think, again, this is really uh, could be a great tool to repurposing land right now that is underperforming um, and, and can can be great sites for housing near transit and jobs. And especially, as you mentioned, the shifts that we're already seeing and that may be permanent due to people working from home, that sort of thing. For the last few years, David, a lot of attention nationwide has gone to YIMBYs, the yes in my backyard folks, who have successfully developed some big ideas for closing California's housing gaps. I'm thinking of SB 9 and 10. They may not have gotten everything they fought for, but they made real progress on smaller scale housing ideas, missing middle housing, duplexes, quadplexes, and then ADUs. What do you think is next for that movement? More small wins or doubling down to try to achieve major change? That's a great question. Um, I will also say, you know, outside of the zoning reform, I think some tools that affordable housing um, practitioners use has come out of this movement too, right? So Senate Bill 35 is a streamlining bill um, that a lot of projects have availed themselves of to to speed up the entitlement process and get affordable housing built quicker. Um, That's been a huge win too. Um, I think there's still a lot to be done on this. this small-scale development issue, right? So we have ADUs, uh, accessory dwelling units, right? They, they've been uh, a real success story in California. Um, the next step was Senate Bill 9, allowing essentially a duplexes uh, in single-family areas. Um, but there's still a lot of room to grow there. Um, the bill uh, is not clear in some areas, and so I think there will, will be an opportunity to do some cleanup there. Um to really uh, make sure that the intent of the bill is carried out at the local level. Um, we had to do this with ADUs, right? Like in 2016, uh, ADUs were basically legalized throughout the state, but it took several years of subsequent legislation to really see uh, ADUs take off, right? We had to uh, address the impact fee question, um, setbacks, height requirements, things like that. Um, were all addressed through uh, bills in subsequent years. 
of ADU legalization passing. So I think we'll see a similar pathway for Senate Bill 9 and this creation of more, you know, quote, missing middle housing types in California. So I think that's that's an area that you'll see a lot of pro-housing groups continue to push on. Um, and I, I don't think the idea that we should be building even more densely around transit um, is going away either. Um, I know Senator Scott Weiner, uh, that was his big uh, initiative for a few years, right? Uh, and I don't think that, um, you know, that, that, is, that is necessarily dead. I think there's still a tremendous need to, to do that, um, given uh, our, our, our investments in, in transits and, and the need to make sure we're leveraging those investments with uh, with dense housing. So I think that's that's still probably um, on the table um, in, in the future. So um, other other things that I'm, I'm hopeful that we can address too are, you know, the cost of housing. I mentioned this off the top. It's really expensive to build housing in California. Are there ways that we can innovate um, either through policy or, um, or or the private sector to create new, uh, more efficient ways to create homes. And, um, you know, I'm thinking about offsite modular construction. This is something the Turner Center has examined in the past and has huge potential. Um, I, I think Eden has, has used modular um, or examined modular for some of their projects too, right? So I think the potential is really there um, to, to create um, homes that are uh, just as, um, you know, just as attractive uh, and um, an appealing uh, through an offsite modular process. So I think that's that's an area um, that that I am looking at as well. What about a housing bond? Do you think we're going to be seeing one on the ballot? I do. So we had Senate Bill Five this last year, um, kind of uh, t- to set the table for a bond, um, and it looks like that's going to be uh, negotiated on next year. So I would anticipate that that will be coming soon. Um, the uh, the last bond we passed actually is going to run out of money, you know, in the next year or so. So that that's going to be a big priority um, for the housing community is to get a bond on the ballot um, and to get it passed next year. And finally, the state is expected to have another year of multi-billion-dollar surpluses. Do you think the governor and the legislature will go even bigger on housing in an election year? Um. Yeah, I, I hope so. Um, I don't think there's any reason not to, um, particularly when we're talking about. Uh, resources for for affordable housing right so uh even with the accelerator fund and with the the dollars allocated this year you know those are one-time things and we know that we need to be building housing for years to come so uh, as much as we can allocate uh, to the continued momentum of creating affordable housing uh that that's going to be key so uh, hopefully you know this is something that we see continued uh, as long as uh, economic conditions allow for it David, thanks so much for your insights today and all year long in the research papers and the press and on Twitter. We appreciate it. Yeah, it's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. David Garcia is the policy director for the Turner Center for Housing Innovation at UC Berkeley. I'm Joanne Green. To hear more episodes of the Affordable Housing Podcast, visit us at edenhousing.org. 